hppodcraft.com. It is not likely that anyone in Boston, or any alert reader elsewhere, will ever forget the strange affair of the Cabot Museum. The newspaper publicity given to that hellish mummy, the antique and terrible rumors vaguely linked with it, the morbid wave of interest and cult activities during 1932, and the frightful fate of the two intruders on December 1st of that year, all combined to form one of those classic mysteries which go down for generations as folklore and become the nuclei of whole cycles of horrific speculation. That was the opening paragraph of Out of the Eons, a manuscript found among the effects of the late Richard H. Johnson, Ph.D., curator of the Cabot Museum of Archaeology, Boston, Massachusetts. Although we know that it's actually written by H.P. Lovecraft and... Hazel Heald. That's right. <laughs> i got to make sure we get that in there. And uh, you are at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And we're joined with our, one of our favorite guest hosts, Ken Hyde. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for coming back. Always love it. Uh, this week, we have a sponsor. Uh, this week's sponsor we found through a listener named Andrew Mix of Greenpoint. And it's a kick-ass book called You Shall Never Know Security by J.R. Helmantashin. This is an anthology, and it it's great. It's very creepy. It's definitely horror, and it's surprisingly mm-hmm. sad. The stories are horrific and terrible, but they really give you that dark, empty, hopeless feeling, and it's pretty Lovecraftian, and I think that's why it's a good thing to talk about on the show. There's a few stories that I really liked in there. Lower Power, which was kind of about a ghoul, which I thought was a really mm-hmm. cool story. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, there is always something in the misfortune of our friends that doesn't displease us, which was really creepy and very poignant, I thought. But the that one that sounds like uh, the title of a Smith song. <laughs> it does, but no Smith song uh, has yeah. people, you know, having the things happen to them, which happens in the story. <laughs> no, not at all. No, not at all. The one I really liked was uh, "Truth Is Stranger Than Fiction." Oh yeah, yeah, that's Did great. You read that one? Yes, yeah. I, I've read the whole book. That's but see, that's the thing about this is it's an anthology, and that's kind of the blessing and the curse of the anthology is that I, I don't always get through them all because you read a story and you can put it down you read a story you put it down right. but this one I, I got went through the whole damn thing it was great I loved it and it's available on Amazon you can get it for $10.50 $10.50 or 5 bucks on the Kindle great so that's great yeah I wrote, I wrote a blurb if you go to if you go to Amazon you can read what I said about the book because I thought it, it was great so get it again it's called You Shall Never Know Security so we'll put up a link to that and everybody should check it out our opening paragraph that was uh, our reader is Mark Macher straight out of Austin a friend of the show all around good guy Marcus he, he told me he's actually going to be doing an Lovecraft show later, what? yeah, next year at the Hideout Theater in Austin. I'd be curious to see that format. I'm, I don't know how they're going to do it, but he's like... going to do a regular show and then he's going to be attacked by an octopus midway through it. <laughs> Just everything else is the same, and then the octopus <laughs> attack. Him. Okay, well, out of the eons, Hazel Heald and H.P. Lovecraft. Why don't we dive into it? What, what's going on here at the beginning of the story? This story, it's all from the notes of the late Dr. Johnson, who was a curator of the right. Cabot Museum in Boston. He's making this record because no one else wants to talk about what happened. The staff, reporters, nobody wants to tell you what actually was going down. And that there's some cults that exist that want him dead. Right. You know? Like, and well, that's what he's, he's saying. I don't want anybody to read this account of it while I'm alive. But once I'm dead, this should be found among my papers and people can find out what really happened. Because there's actually a, one of the things that made me laugh is it says, in these days of expert taxidermy, the excuse that this mummy's disintegrating condition made an exhibition impossible seemed a peculiarly lame one. <laughs> <laughs> because people are asking questions, right? Yeah. And I think my favorite part of it in, in this introductory section is the widespread secret cults of Asiatics, Polynesians, and heterogeneous mystical devotees. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like, oh, good old Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah. And there's a note at that point that says uh, Dr. Johnson died suddenly and rather mysteriously. Yeah, heart failure. Heart failure. Hmm, strange. So I'm thinking he was jostled by a nautical-looking Negro. So he may have been jostled. <laughs> or perhaps in this case, a nautical-looking Kanak. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But, but his death is not the only one, right? The taxidermist, him uh, of the lame reconstruction, died. Yeah. Uh, or rather disappeared in the middle of the month. And mm -hmm. then the same year, Dr. William Minot, who superintended a dissection connected with the case, was stabbed in the back. Nothing mysterious about that. <laughs> <laughs> Stabbed in the back. That's right. Wow. So basically, it's a very typical mummy's curse kind of introduction in that everybody that was involved with the mummy died in some horrific right. way. Or right. Mysteriously. Exactly. Already at this point, I thought, well, this is just Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. To a, a bit. The framing structure of it, the, the way that it's found among the papers of this doctor, mm -hmm. the fact that he'd been murdered by a cult. It seemed very reminiscent of that story. It did. This is very much, I mean, he's writing this as a, a ghost writing for Hazel Heald. He assumes that no one will ever know that he wrote it, right? I mean, there's no reason that this is going to get ever get published under his name. That's yeah. totally outside Lovecraft's mental universe. So he's ghost writing for Hazel Heald at whatever criminally low rates he charges. And so he's like, well, I got Call of Cthulhu sitting around. Why not just do it over again, only make it, you know, one louder since it's a it's a revision and I don't have to put the, 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 the sort of the consummate care into it. I can sort of take this is a little vacation or a self-parody or whatever you want to call it. I think that's exactly it, yeah. But I still really enjoyed the story. Well, yeah, I mean, Lovecraft slacking off is still loads better than virtually anyone else working seriously. So. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So they talk about how the mummy comes to the museum, and it was in 1879, and no one knows where exactly it was found, but there was an island that wasn't known of before that just sort of shot up out of the Pacific Ocean. Again, very similar to Call Cthulhu, like Relay coming up from the ocean. There was this island that popped up, and it had this tomb on it with cyclopean masonry and, and all those types of things. It was near New Zealand in the South Pacific. If we ever go ahead with that Lovecraft um, amusement park we've talked about previously, <laughs> I'd like to design a, a whack-a-mole game that just has, instead of moles, it would be just islands emerging from the Pacific, and you have to <laughs> you have to smack them down before they get written about in somebody's journal. You, know? you, you could combine it with the uh, with the claw game. You reach down and grab the mummy or the or the basalt statue or whatever with a little claw before it sinks back down. Yes. <laughs> Delightful. Oh, it designs itself. So these guys, when they came up on the island, they found this tomb, and then inside this tomb, there was a mummy crouched in a corner of a crypt, and the sailors themselves were freaked out totally by the carvings on the wall. Like they were depicting these crazy things, which they're very vague about, but they were really upsetting. Mm -hmm. And this mummy that was kind of crouched in the corner had a metal cylinder. Yeah, they found that close to the to the body and it had these strange markings on it. And uh, in the center of the floor is this some kind of trap door, yeah. but they weren't able to, to move it to go down there. <laughs> Probably yeah. a good thing. Yes, um, all for the best. <laughs> yes. So the curator then of the Cabot Museum, which had just been newly established, uh, went out right to see the mummy in the cylinder this was curator pickman yep you think there's any relation there or is he just using the name and what I don't know. I assume that all the Pikmins are, are related to some extent and that, you know, Curator Pikmin, he's in the art world because he's a museum curator. So obviously he's got sort of a, a debatable and disturbing, you know, great grandnephew or whatever that, you know, winds right. up painting ghouls. I assume that since if, if Lovecraft uses the same name, it's because there is some connection. It's more fun to think that anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Well, when Pikmin made his trip out there, he was able to acquire the mummy in the cylinder, but the 
the island sank again. Yeah, it was gone. It wasn't there anymore. Yeah, so whatever seismic forces brought it up were the same seismic forces that brought it down. That didn't make much sense to me, but it just kind of came up and then it went back down into the sea. Right. So they couldn't get to that trapdoor. They never could solve that mystery. No. What was down there? At the museum, they added this mummy to the, the Hall of Mummies. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a Hall of Mummies, which is awesome at, at this uh, at the Cabot Museum of Archaeology. That was really exciting to me. I like the whole idea of this museum, too, They, they because it used to be a, a mansion, right? And they've, yeah. they've they've added, they've created a museum out of this old building that was a mansion. I, I like that. Now, this, the Cabot Museum, as far as I could tell, wasn't a real museum, right? I don't I don't think it's a real museum. Yeah. I think it's it's basically Lovecraft riffing on probably the, the Boston Museum of Fine Art, which is the very classy um, uh, archaeological and antiquarian museum in Boston, world famous. Now we've got we've got a bit of a description of this mummy here, and it's it's pretty creepy. The mummy was that of a medium-sized man of unknown race, and was cast in a peculiar crouching posture. The face, half shielded by claw-like hands, had its underjaw thrust far forward, while the shriveled features bore an expression of fright so hideous that few spectators could view them unmoved. The eyes were closed, with lids clamped down tightly over eyeballs, apparently bulging and prominent. Bits of hair and beard remained, and the color of the whole was a sort of dull, neutral gray. In texture, the thing was half leathery and half stony, forming an insoluble enigma to those experts who sought to ascertain how it was embalmed. In places, bits of substance were eaten away by time and decay, rags of some peculiar fabric with suggestions of unknown designs still clung to the object. Kind of reminded me of those people who died in the ash clouds in after Pompeii? the eruption in Pompeii. Yeah, yeah. you know how you, they're preserved in the ruins there, and they're all in. Some of them are in these kind of motions or positions that make it look like they were horrified or, or screaming or right. trying to hold their hands over their heads. Yeah, they have those Pompeian mummies in the Cabot Museum. Says Lovecraft, so he was probably thinking about them as well. Oh, you're right. Agonized Pompeian figures. I just watched some, you know, History Channel documentary about it, so that's what made me think of it. <laughs> <laughs> Lovecraft probably just read the article on mummy in the Encyclopedia Britannica, so it's the same That's basic awesome. principle. <laughs> uh, so the experts take a look at this mummy, and they just can't figure out what the, what the hell it is or where it's from. You know, there's some sort of Polynesian hints to it, but it's not quite Polynesian, or maybe Tahiti or something. But there, it's, none of it seems, none of it fits. There's a reference here to the Cardiff Giant, mm-hmm. right? So when this mummy first came to the Cabot Museum, it didn't become a big blown-up sensation as it was to become later. Yeah. And I think his reasoning is because the press hadn't become ridiculous yet. He says the art of vulgar ballyhoo had not invaded the field of scholarship. <laughs> which, 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 given that he uses the, 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 the Cardiff Giant, like the line before that, is just, it's historically nonsensical. Yeah, I found that odd too. The Cardiff Giant, this was some hoax perpetrated by an atheist, right? I think it was by P.T. Barnum. Or either, yeah. the original hoax was by some guy who wanted people to come pay a nickel a gander at his farm, and then P.T. Barnum blew it up into a big deal. Right, but he, he was sort of, like P.T. Barnum was kind of like Gallagher's brother, you know, how he does Gallagher. Gallagher's act, but it's the exact same act. Like this, because <laughs> the original guy, awesome I think he... Gallagher's brother, come on. <laughs> I know, but my point is just that I think the, the guy that created, this guy that perpetrated the hoax had a real elaborate plan where he sent away to some sculptor to make it and then he got it back and he buried it and then faked it, the discovery of unearthing it because his, I think he was uh, saying, you know, the Bible is so ridiculous. Look, there are giants in the Bible. Where, where is there evidence of giants? Anywhere. And he wanted to show how people will believe anything, and so that's why he kind of created this giant and said it was a fossilized version of the... Am I getting this right? Of the, yeah, the creature from yeah, the Bible? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But P.T. Barnum 
saw that he was making dough off of it, and he just ripped them off and made his own. Yeah, because they wouldn't sell it to P.D. Burnham, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, and I think this is where there's a sucker born every minute comes from, mm-hmm. this whole story. Somebody had said that about P.T. Barnum's Cardiff Giant. It's often attributed to P.T. Barnum, but it was actually somebody else said that about... Boy, I really don't have the facts, do I? I, I, I know. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in Chicago, we, we, we attribute a sucker born every minute to the guy who invented the Mickey Finn, the first great Chicago board healer, who when people asked how he was going to keep his immense gambling hall going as a profitable concern, he would say, don't worry about it, boys. There's a sucker born every minute. Mm. Uh, well, I, according to Wikipedia, it was David Hannum uh, said it, there's a sucker born every minute in reference to spectators paying to see P.T. Barnum's giant. Yeah, okay. Wikipedia. <laughs> It's Wikipedia. <laughs> it could have just been some joker to put it up there. You, you know how that is. Yeah. Maybe we're the suckers. Yeah. See, another source credits, uh, also from Wikipedia, credits uh, Chicago bounty broker, saloon and gambling housekeeper, eminent politician, and dispenser of cheating privileges, Mike McDonald, the oh. creator of the Mickey Finn. So there. Ha ha. Oh. Dispenser of cheating privileges. Yeah. What a great title to have. Hey. <laughs> no way. We've, now we've gone off track here. <laughs> Yeah, We've yeah, really yeah. got All right, well, so so all we need to know at this point is that the mummy's there. Nobody's no, freaking no, no, out No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. There's a big no. thing here that I want to okay. talk about. That in its scroll, it's got this mm. metal container, and it is a blue-white scroll that has crazy glyphs on it, and they don't know what those glyphs are. It doesn't match anything except maybe the Book of Iban, maybe the Narcotic Fragments, the Necronomicon, Nameless Cults, and Nameless Cults is where we get a real connection to this mummy. What I liked about this specifically is the way that um, you normally when Lovecraft says that such and such a book has been suppressed and no one has read it, he just says it to sort of goose up how awesome the, the fact is that you happen to find this book in an attic somewhere. Uh-huh. But here, he says the reason no one recognizes these glyphs is that the Nameless Cults, the Black Book of von Junst, was suppressed and so no one had seen those glyphs until the Golden Goblin republishing in 1909. So the mummy shows up in 1879, but because the Nameless Cults has been suppressed, no one recognizes the glyphs. And I thought that was actually a kind of an interesting use of what he usually just uses as sort of a one-off signifier, but now he's actually worked it into the plot, the explanation right. of why no one gets the mystery. Yeah, he totally changes it up. And that uh, gets us through the first chapter. We've got the mummy in the museum, and we know that there's going to be some relation between those glyphs and nameless cults, and uh, no ballyhoo yet, but when we get into the second <laughs> chapter... <laughs> ballyhoo plenty. That's right. <laughs> For a half century, the mummy's there, no big deal, but then in 1931, they made another purchase, the Kevin Museum, that was very sort of sensational. It was a bunch of strange objects and preserved bodies found in crypts beneath uh, some ruins in Chateau Fusflam in Averroigne, uh, which I think is a Clark Ashton Smith creation, yeah? Yeah, I believe it's from the Colossus of Yalorn. I think he's actually pretending that they bought something from one of the Ashton Smith stories, that there's a piece of that story that gets purchased, or a relic of that story that gets purchased and brought to his museum. Sort of a shout out to his buddy. That's so cool because now you gotta go figure out which of those stories it is. (laughs) Because all we know is that they get this variety of strange objects and preserved bodies they bring them to the musician uh, to the musician to the museum and uh and then the boston pillar sends a feature writer to cover the incident true to its hustling policy Stuart reynolds <laughs> and, and this guy Stuart reynolds comes out and he's not as interested in the fusflam stuff as he is interested in the old mummy and the scroll so yeah. he starts reading up on that and uh it says that Stuart has a uh, fondness for the speculations of such writers as colonel churchward and Lewis Spence. Can you guys tell me who those guys are? Uh, colonel Churchward uh, was actually, I think he was a prospector. I don't think he was actually ever a real colonel. Lewis Spence was a occultist who put together a whole lot of compilations of myth 
both authentic uh, actual myths of the medieval Scots or the Aztecs or whatever, and also sort of the crazy theosophical uh, speculations of Madame Blavatsky and the other Lost Continent scholars, to use the term loosely, of his day. He was actually doing it because he was a political radical who believed that uh, the myths of the Aztecs were just as important to, to the world as the myths of the Norse or the Greeks. And he wanted to sort of bring everybody's myths out to everybody's uh, consumption. Scots, the Irish, the Aztecs, whoever it was, he put together a book of their myths because he didn't think that mythology should just be for Greeks and Romans, that it should be for everybody, that everybody had myths. So he was sort of doing this as a political uh, statement. A lot of theosophists had politically radical stripe to them. The whole notion that India has a culture that is the oldest and most important in the world is basically just a slap at Great Britain, which obviously radicals enjoyed taking. Man, <laughs> I, I have Lewis Spence's Encyclopedia of the Occult. Oh yeah, I've, I've got a, a shelf of Lewis Spence. <laughs> I got it when I was a kid. It was great. Colonel Churchward. But, so why did he make himself a colonel? And what is he, what is he did he share these views? Or? Uh, Churchward, um, I, I don't know what kind of views he necessarily... I mean, he was a, uh, a mystic, but I think his mm. mysticism was much more sort of um, Protestant compared to the sort of wild theosophy. He wrote the, the books about the continent of Mew, which we're about to uh, encounter any moment now in the story, and they were all pretty good sellers. I mean, they, they had a uniform paperback release from a major paperback line that <laughs> which I own. And uh, <laughs> he was, I, I believe he began as a prospector or something. He, it, it says here he was a tea planter in Ceylon. He you know, wandered around the British Empire in South Asia having adventures. And then in his senescence, basically, he writes the story of the lost continent of Mia, which in his telling, it has a proper racial um, uh, hierarchy and they only worship one God and they believe in the brotherhood of man. And it, it's all very sort of New England Protestant all of a sudden. Uh. No, um, uh, no, no vile ritual and, and whatnot for Colonel Churchward. Boo. He just promotes himself to Colonel because it's more impressive than guy who pretends to find manuscripts Churchward. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like we, my first dog. We named him Commander Sam. He didn't earn that rank. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, maybe he bought his rank. That's possible. <laughs> that's possible. Well, so these guys, this reporter, Stuart Reynolds, has read all this stuff. He, he's very interested in lost continents and primal forgotten civilizations, and so that makes him especially alert towards anything that, like this mummy that might be from that world. And obviously the stories about how they found the mummy is very interesting to him. So he, he bugs everybody, gets as much information as he can about this mummy. He's asking to see any books that have any bearing, whatever, on, on primal cultures and sunken continents, etc. He seems like a very thorough reporter. It's funny that he's referencing the story as being part of this sensational journalism thing, and yet he's spending hours and hours going through scholastic books. You know what I mean? Trying to figure yeah. out trying to decode this stuff. He even goes to Cambridge to, to look at the Necronomicon. Uh, his reasoning for doing this is he goes, the mummies are hot right now. And he goes, there's this old mummy at the museum here locally. And that could be something. And we, and he started doing this research and getting, so his motives, I think aren't purely academic and more True. sensational. And that's funny. I think it is this case of mummies are hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they were, they were at that time, right? Was it 1931? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, People right, love absolutely. mummies. There's a parallel to this guy that I don't know if Lovecraft knew anything about, but it's the sort of person that, uh, uh, that that Reynolds is is the similar sort of person as is Elliot O'Donnell, who is a British gutter journalist, and he wrote books about werewolves and haunted houses and secret societies. And he would go to the British Museum and he'd look up all the stuff so that his book about werewolves would be better than anybody else's book about werewolves when he filled it with all the exaggerated or just plain made up stuff that he'd run across in his uh, career as a reporter. And he he would do these dramatic stories in various British newspapers and. 
then he'd also sell them as fiction to sort of true detective and mystery story magazines, and then he'd publish them as books. So I assume that Reynolds basically has got an eye on the main chance. He's planning not just his series for the Boston Pillar, but he's going to write a, the, the, the big bestseller book about this mummy, and he's going to make the kind of fat bank that Colonel Churchward is making. Uh-huh. Well, on April 5th of that year, the article finally appears in the Sunday Pillar, smothered in photographs of the mummy and the cylinder, etc. And uh, a great line here, it says, it's couched in the peculiarly simpering infantile style which the pillar affects for the benefit of its vast and mentally immature clientele, full of inaccuracies, exaggerations, and sensationalism. Uh, it's the kind of thing to stir the brainless and fickle interest of the herd. When I read that, and obviously we can talk about this more as we go through the story, I thought, is this story, it, is this about the press and politics? I mean, it seemed like more of the comments on uh, the sensationalism of the press were here in this story than I normally don't see Lovecraft editorializing about things like that. Hmm. No, he does talk about the press in, in Dunwich Horror as well. They talk, talk about how all these things are going on and the press just says it's a bunch of local idiots getting drunk. They're, they're not reporting on what's actually happening. Yeah. And, well, I, I guess certainly the press is used as a tool in, in a lot of his stories. And, and I there would just seem to be, and here's the reason I thought it, as, and I don't want to jump ahead too far, but it's addressed here. He ha, He has kind of a low point of view on journalism in the papers because they are always reporting things wrong but even when we have the, f- the flashback story like what happened to this mummy and why we get there there's mm-hmm. elements of it there too where the priests that were against him spread all of these rumors and lies about him like there's press happening in the ancient world too that is yeah. just as equally as defamatory and I, I don't know I just find this he doesn't normally seem to be commenting as much on that. I, I think that might be part of it. I think I didn't – I have to say when I was rereading it, I didn't notice that parallel that you just brought up, which I think is a really good and sound one. I was looking at it more as a as of a piece of the standard Lovecraft complaint that people of proper aesthetic uh, understanding are drowned out by ignorant rabble. And so you get a piece of that like in Pickman's model where it's like all these people who think that they're great artists cut Pickman but con- – but conversely, people like Robert Blake from Honor of the Dark and his other sort of um, uh, literary stand-ins, Randolph Carter, they, they write these stories that are popular only insofar as they don't mean anything, right? That they have to sort of uh, dumb themselves down to appeal to the simpering herd. And obviously a lot of that's just Lovecraft projecting that his yeah. irritation, that, that his stuff is not uh, being read by the literate uh, smart set, but is in fact you know, being, you know, churned out at, you know, a, a, a penny a word for uh, semi-literates for weird tales. So I, I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of, of, of that's more sort of the, the constant thread through a lot of Lovecraft's uh, approach to aesthetics or approach to, um, you know, the, the philosophy of art in his in his stories. But the specific thing about the press, I think that you're absolutely right, uh, Chad, that that's that's really what's going on with this story and the parallel with with what goes on later on. You know, in ancient times, in Mew is is kind of it, it, it. It's really kind of interesting. I wish I'd noticed that when I was reading it. I win. I won this podcast. I just won it right now. <laughs> Your supply of turtle wax for you, pal. This article causes a great stir, and so suddenly people are showing up to see this thing. You know, they're descending upon the museum, right? Yep, lots of people. In fact, even a dark somebody, the Swami Chandraputra, shows up da, da, da. with uh, clumsy hands covered with absurd white mittens. <laughs> <laughs> Still I love wearing those, those white mittens. I love those mittens so much, man. And we we <laughs> we, we know that Swami Shandaputra is Randolph Carter in uh, Through the Gates of the Silver Key. So he, yeah, um, and just to remember, he is in a alien body covered up to look like a uh, an Indian man. Well, he has to have those mittens 
to cover up his monstrously misshapen and alien hand. Yes. When he goes in the museum, must it be like, here's your ticket, sir. Uh, could you please handle the ticket for me? As you can see, I'm wearing mittens. You know, I, mean, I, 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 I want to hear dramatized everything that goes on with him having to deal with the real world, world in those days. I, I couldn't tell if he was teasing because he had such a curiously expressionless face. So. <laughs> Oh, but okay. this, is, this is just a reference to Shonda Putra. I mean, yeah, he shows up, it. he checks it out, and then he splits again, right? Although yeah. there's other characters from Through the Gates of Silver Key. I mean, because it's not just crazy kind of the herd, people who just want sensationalism, they're showing up. Some real men of science and occultists are showing up. One result of all of the publicity was that there was an article in the Occult Review by the famous New Orleans mystic Etienne Laurent de Marigny, which is also, he's a character in Through the Gates of Silver Key as yep. well. And he's yeah, the one that yeah. points out the symbol, the similarity of the symbols uh, to the the nameless cults by von Newtons or Black Book. It's, yeah. It has two names, Black Book or the nameless cults by von von Newtons. Yeah, he's the one that first puts that together, and I thought that was pretty cool. He's a, I like that character a lot. That was his place that has the weird clock in it and stuff, right? Yes. Through the gates of exactly. it, it, It's it's his clock that Brian Lumley annexes to be the central artifact, and I think Demarion is even a, a character in some of the early Lumley stories. Yeah. Either Demarini or one of his uh, descendants. Well, this also kind of connects von Nunes because he died under mysterious circumstances after publishing the book in 1840. Oh, yeah, that's strange. Strange. Well, wait, where did they say? What what happened to him? Uh, It says. Timarini recalled the frightful death of von Nunes in 1940, a year after the publication of the terrible volume in Dusseldorf, and commented on his blood curling and and, uh, maybe he doesn't. Tales of which von Nunes. They don't really say, do they? Just that he had a frightful death. Yeah, I, I seem to recall that his throat was cut uh, in a cl- in a locked room, but that might have been Gottfried Mulder. There's a lot of these German occultists in the mythos that, <laughs> that suffer ill fates. So uh, okay, uh, uh, von Junst is found dead in a locked and bolted chamber with taloned finger marks on his throat. What? That's, oh wow, where are you? That's from a Robert E. That's Howard that? story, The Black Stone. Oh, so Robert E. Howard also used von Junst. I didn't realize that. Robert E. Howard invented von Junst. Aha, man. Oh, man. Yeah, it's so cool. I didn't know that. Well, anyway, that ends uh, chapter two, because now in chapter three, we find out about what's in the Black Book. Right, because the curator goes and checks it out himself, right? He read the Golden Goblin edition. Yep. So that's actually a good place to stop, because in the next episode, we can get into all of the things that are in that monstrous volume (laughs) and kind of give us some background on what this mummy is and what that scroll might be. Ken, you think you can join us again next time? I believe I can probably make time. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks to our our sponsor this week. Yes. This week, again, uh, I want everybody to go out pick up either kindle or soft 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 back that's not right soft soft cover soft cover that doesn't sound right either what's wrong with me i want everybody <laughs> is to is I want it a paperback perhaps paperback thank you that's what i'm trying to think i want everybody to go out <laughs> go at <laughs> i'm so tired <laughs> <laughs> I want everybody to go out and pick up uh, You Shall Never Know Security by J.R. Humantashen. Uh, it's a great book, really creepy and scary stuff. It will curdle your blood. That's right. Please buy it, uh, not only because it's a good book, but also because it helps us support the show. You can pick it up paperback for ten fifty at Amazon or get it on the Kindle for 5 bucks. You will not be disappointed. I loved it. You will too. And I uh, also wanted to thank our reader, uh, Mark Major, for doing a great job. Thanks, Mark, so much. And we're going to have him back on the next episode. And then before we all say goodbye, Chris, how's uh, how's how's life as a father? Oh, my God. I am so tired. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's great. It's great. Uh, no, no. He's awesome. The kids uh, kick ass. He totally is healthy. Everybody's um, happy. We're doing well. And 
he's perfectly normal baby boy. Uh, we're, we're very happy and ecstatic to be parents, Rachel and I. Uh, however, we are extremely tired. Yeah. Parents will know exactly what I'm talking about out there. Yeah, I'm sure many do. And, uh, well, congratulations. Thank and, you so uh, much. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. And that's all we have for this week. We'll be back with the second part of Out of the Eons. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Kenneth Height. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. Yay. Yeah. HPPodcraft.com. Yeah.